Pray now for the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Spirit of wisdom and revelation, enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see your revealed truth. Then give us wisdom to understand and the strength to apply it in our day-to-day lives. In Jesus' name, amen. This morning's scripture reading is taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 15, beginning with verse 12, the Gospel of the Lord. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Jenny. There was something wrong with Doris. We just weren't sure what it was. British medical doctor Ishani Karpukiyashta shares a story about his interaction with Doris, an 82-year-old hospital patient. It was two days before Christmas. Doris seemed healthy and ready for discharge, but for some reason she kept complaining about inexplicable health issues. He writes, yesterday it was her arm that was hurting. Before that, it was her hip. Truth is, Doris is an incredibly healthy 82-year-old, and we can't figure anything that's wrong with her. I have no doubt that it's going to be the same today. Then another set of x-rays came back normal, and so the doctor told Doris that he would have to stick to his plan of sending her home. Doris looked down at the floor. The sorrow had turned to despair. It was just two days before Christmas. She was alone. There would be no one waiting at home for her. And quietly she said, I don't want to go home. It's just that I'm all alone there. And there's so many hours in the day. Doris was friendless. We're going to look at the mission of the church, the mission of God for us, from a series of interactions recorded in the Acts of the Apostles, the history of those earliest followers of Jesus. We're going to read Acts chapter 9, beginning in the middle of verse 19 and going through verse 43 in your pew Bible. If you want to look there, it's page 1707, or you can follow along on the wall. What is the mission of God for us? What do we see here? Acts 9 beginning in the middle of verse 19. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. At once, he began to preach in the synagogues that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come 
here to, to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? Yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled those Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, uh, the Jews conspired, that's those that weren't Christians, because Paul, of course, was a Jew, as were all the Christians, but these Jews conspired to kill him. That's their leaders. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. And when he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles, and he told them how Saul on his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. And so Saul stayed with them and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. And he talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, and they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. And then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in fear of the Lord. And as Peter traveled about the country, he went to visit the saints in Lydda. There he found a man named Aeneas, a paralytic who had been bedridden for eight years. Aeneas, Peter said to him, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and take care of your mat. And immediately Aeneas got up, and all those who lived in Lydda and Sharon saw him and turned to the Lord. And in Joppa, there was a disciple named Tabitha, which when translated is Dorcas, who was also doing good and helping the poor. About that time, she became sick and died, and her body was washed and placed in an upstairs room. Lydda was near Joppa, so when the disciples heard that Peter was in Lydda, they sent two men to him and urged him, please come at once. Peter went with them, and when he arrived, he was taken upstairs to the room, and all the widows stood around him, crying and showing him the robes and the other clothing that Dorcas had made while she was still with them. Peter sent them all out of the room. Then he got down on his knees and he prayed. And turning toward the dead woman, he said, Tabitha, get up. And she opened her eyes. And seeing Peter, she sat up. And he took her by the hand and he helped her to her feet. And then he called the believers and the widows and presented her to them alive. And this became known all over Joppa. And many people believed in the Lord. And Peter stayed in Joppa for some time with a tanner named Simon. What mission of God do we see here? We see his mission to be a friend to the friendless. A friend to the friendless, in this case a friend to a man who was physically threatening. You understand when Barnabas takes Saul or Paul under his wing, understand what kind of man he was taking under his wing. Paul's job was to jail Christians. That's why they were terrified of him. That's why people were murmuring. That's why the the, the Christian community, even the disciples, they didn't trust him. They didn't believe him. Paul, you're not a Christian. You came here to murder Christians, to jail them, to drag them back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, we don't trust you. He was physically threatening. Jesus wants us to offer friendship, to be a friend to those 
who we don't always feel safe around? Who are the people that you find physically intimidating? On the one hand, you've got the Islamic extremist who maybe wants you dead because you follow Jesus. But what about big guys with dreadlocks and gold teeth? For some of you, you find that intimidating. Or what about big white men with pickup trucks with Confederate flags in the back? Some of you find that very intimidating. What about the guy at the end of your block who sells drugs? For some of you, based on your experience, it may be the police officer with the blue suit and the badge that you find threatening. And maybe with good reason for some of these. They had good reason to feel threatened by Saul. Yet what we see here is Barnabas takes him under his wing. He lets him get close, close enough to hurt him if possible, if he wanted that. What's it mean to be a friend to the, those who are physically threatening? It means identifying with the person that you fear. They even became, some of them, followers of Saul as they, as they began to trust that God was really working in him. They offered physical assistance when needed. They lowered him down in a basket to help him escape his enemies. They advocated for him, for the person that, that was feared. Look at the lengths to which Barnabas went in order to break Saul into the Christian community, taking him under his wing, leveraging all his own relational capital, greasing the wheels, arguing on behalf of his former enemy, advocating for him, working endlessly to make sure that this man got into Christian community, to make sure that he was accepted and dispel all of the fear and all of the suspicion from all of the history, the background, the baggage. It's always there. He puts himself out there to love the man who had seemed unlovable, to be a friend to one who was physically threatening, a friend to the friendless. Yet we see in this passage another kind of friendless person. A friend, yes, to those who are physically threatening, but also a friend to those who are physically dependent. As we see with the story of Aeneas, who was paralyzed and bedridden, it says, for eight years. Can you imagine what that would have been like? The bed sores, the humiliation of using the bathroom when you can't get up, can't control your muscles, can't clean yourself up afterwards, being dependent on others to bring you food, dependent on others to feed you, to get you dressed every day, the isolation in between those periods of being bedridden. And Peter hunts this man down. He finds him and he offers what he as an apostle who could perform miracles could do. He was a friend to the friendless. And this gets very messy for us. It's not about just trying to effect a cure like you're crossing something off a task list. It's about the care itself, about the love, the compassion, the mutual knowing that goes into caring for another human being. Henry Nouwen explains it like this. He says, what we see and like to see is cure and change, fixing things. But what we do not see and do not really want to see is care, the participation in the pain, the solidarity in suffering, the sharing in the experience of brokenness, and still cure without care is as dehumanizing a gift as a gift given with a cold heart. We're challenged here by a vision, not just of curing, but of caring in all that messiness to be a friend to the friendless. And who are the physically dependent in your orbit? Who do you know who has trouble getting around? Maybe it's because of an illness. Maybe it's age-related. Maybe it's because they don't have a vehicle in a very auto-centric, auto-dependent context. Who is it that you know that in order to go get groceries, it takes, you know, four bus rides and, and half an afternoon? 
just to get food? Um, who do you know that's shut in? It's not hard to, to make a phone call or knock on a door and say, hi, Mrs. Lawrence, I haven't seen you in a while, and I just thought I'd reach out to you. How are you doing? You know, I'm going to be running around getting some errands done. I, what can I pick you up? What do you need? How can I help? Yeah, it's a friend. Yes, to those who are physically threatening, but also a friend to those who are physically dependent. And we also see here a mission to be a friend to those who are socially needy. This is what this account of, of Tabitha, also called Dorcas, is all about. She was the center of a deeply impoverished community of widows. To be a widow in the ancient world was to be vulnerable. To be a widow without family to take care of you, you might be an older widow, you might be a young widow. A lot of women lost their husbands when they were young. And yet if you didn't have an extended family to take you in, if you didn't have an extended family to rely on, if you were on your own, you really had two options as a widow in the ancient world. You could either sell yourself into slavery to cover your debts, or you could sell yourself in other ways in order to get by. And, And here we see this Christian woman, Tabitha, doing what no one else was doing. She is there and she is clothing them. She is making their clothes. She is providing their food. She is the center and has brought all of them in in order to love them. And when, and when, when Tabitha dies, they're crying and they're weeping. And it's not that, that Paul then comes and, and you know, resurrects Tabitha because of her good righteous deeds. That's not what's going on. He's not concerned about Tabitha. Tabitha's in the glory of God. Tabitha is seeing the Lamb of God face to face. He's worried about these widows. He can't bear the thought of them selling themselves into slavery or ending up on the streets. And so he is going to do what an apostle can do. He is going to pray to the Lord and bring her back out of love and compassion for these widows with their social neediness their limitations. You know, you think about those classes of people in the Old Testament under the Mosaic law given at Sinai to Israel. You think of those protected special classes of people. Who were they? The widows and the orphans and the poor and the migrants. People who had no protections. People who could be taken advantage of. People who could be used people who would be hurt on their own. And so God identified with them even then and gave special protection to them because his mission is for himself and for us is to be a friend to the refugee, a friend to the widow, a friend to the PhD down the hallway who's crippled by his loneliness, a friend to those who are dependent on a welfare system that can't really get anyone free from its grip. A friend to the international student with limited means whose student visa doesn't allow her to have outside employment. A friend to the awkward guy who doesn't seem to have any friends and isn't sure how to make any. A friend to the socially needy. You don't have to have a lot of money to be a friend to the friendless. Um, There was a front page article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a, a bus operator named Linda Wilson Allen. And Linda loves the people who ride her bus. She learns their names. She waits for them if they're late. And and then she makes up the time later on her route. Uh, Once a woman in her 80s named Ivy had some heavy grocery bags and was struggling to get them onto the bus. And so Linda got up out of her driver's seat and got down and carried Ivy's grocery bags up onto the bus. And now Ivy will let other buses pass her by just so that she can ride Linda's bus. One time Linda saw a woman named Tanya in the bus shelter. She could tell Tanya was new to the area and that Tanya was lost. 
It was almost Thanksgiving. And so Linda said to Tanya, Tanya, you're out here all by yourself and you don't know anybody. So you're coming over to my house for Thanksgiving and you're going to kick it with me and the kids. And now they're best friends. Linda built such a community of blessing on that bus that passengers now offer Linda uh, their vacation homes. They bring her potted plants and floral bouquets. When people found out she likes to wear scarves to accessorize her uniforms, they started giving them to her as presents. Think about what a thankless job being a bus driver can be. All of the cranky passengers, people who are angry, people who are trying to get somewhere, engine breakdowns, which you're to blame for, traffic jams, which are your fault, gum on the seats, which you should have cleaned off. You ask yourself, how does she have this attitude? And it's right there in the pages of the San Francisco Chronicle. They write, her mood is set at 2.30 in the morning every day when Linda gets down on her knees to pray to Jesus for 30 minutes. The Chronicle continues, there's a lot of talk with the Lord for her. She's a member of Glad Tidings Church in Hayward. You know, when she gets to the end of her line, she always says, that's all, folks. I love you. Now take care. Have you ever had a bus driver tell you, I love you? People wonder, where can I find the kingdom of God? Where can I find Jesus? Where can I find the church? Friends, it's right there on number 45 bus riding through San Francisco behind the wheel of a metro transit bus. A friend to the friendless because she knows Jesus is her friend. friend to those who are physically threatening, a friend to those who are physically dependent, a friend to those who are socially needy, and yet also, we read in this account, being a friend to those who have been shunned. Shunning, these are the people that you may feel will make you look bad if you're seen with them. The people who nobody wants to befriend. In first century Judaism, this would have been the leather maker, the tanner, the guy who deals with dead animals, the guy who scrapes flesh off the backs of animal hides and treats them and cures them in order to make leather. Under Mosaic law, contact with dead things made you ceremonially unclean. That meant that to come in contact with a tanner or a leather maker was to become unclean and unacceptable yourself. Perhaps the most shunned man in the entire city of Yapa would have been the tanner. And so where does Peter choose to stay while he is in Yapa? Did you notice in verse 43 that little detail? It says Peter stayed in Yapa for some time with a tanner named Simon. That's accepting hospitality from an unexpected source. I mean, Peter was a Jew. He was becoming unclean ceremonially, potentially, from receiving hospitality from a man who was shunned for religious reasons. Who do a lot of religious people shun today? I think you can probably populate your own list. Shunning is an act of social rejection, an emotional distance. It's meant to inflict shame on its victim. It involves deliberately avoiding a person or a group of people, habitually avoiding them. It involves denying them human solidarity for which they were designed. One of my cousins just inherited a double portion of his late father's estate, bought a new truck. He's really happy because the family had disinherited his brother, their other son, for being gay. I've seen people shunned for their theology, 
shunned for marrying a person of the wrong skin color, shunned for wearing Islamic hijab, shunned for not wearing Islamic hijab, shunned for struggling with sexual sins or pornography, shunned for one's political perspective, shunned for all sorts of reasons. Often in our own society, we shun people who struggle with mental illnesses like schizophrenia. And it's incredibly cruel and incredibly destructive. It's a force that causes great mental and social and psychological damage upon its victims. And notice Peter, he doesn't try to fix Simon the Tanner. He stands in continued solidarity with him because he's staying in in Simon the Tanner's house. Any follower of Jesus who wants to talk to the apostle has to go where? Into the leather maker's house. He has to see Simon in order to see Peter. The ceremony, unclean house of Simon the Tanner. It's a solidarity with a man whose life had been one of great suffering. Imagine that kind of solidarity felt like to Simon the Tanner. Imagine how he would have been feeling so alone in his pain, so isolated in his grief, so much rejection from so many sources, and then to be brought into the very center of the Christian community. You, you know what solidarity is. We don't talk a lot about it, but it's, it's at the core of the Bible's mission for us. I remember years ago in the days following the terrorist attacks of September 11, 2001, I remember air traffic was shut down completely. Every airport was closed. Manhattan lay smoldering. We were all glued to our televisions, making phone calls to track down relatives and friends in New York. And and in Washington, there was smoke rising from the Pentagon. The wreckage of a plane and its victims lay in a field in the middle of Pennsylvania. So many loved ones lost. A great nation crippled. Millions around the world were cheering our downfall, celebrating that big, powerful America had been brought to its knees. Death to America in places there was jubilation over the loss. There were thousands of funerals, thousands of memorial services, thousands of children who never saw mom or dad again. In those days after the attacks, as a nation sat stunned, the U.S. Navy's newest guided missile destroyer, the USS Winston Churchill, sighted in the distance the Lutjens, a German warship while out at sea. One of the Churchill's officers gives this account. said, as the Germans were making their approach, our coning officer announced that the German ship was flying an American flag. As they came even closer, they saw that it was flying the flag at half-mast. He continues, the Lutchens came up alongside, and we saw that the entire crew of the German ship were manning the rails in their dress blues. They had made a sign that was displayed on the side of the boat that read, We stand by you. Needless to say, there was not a dry eye on the bridge as they stayed alongside us for a few minutes, and we cut our salutes. It was probably the most powerful thing I have ever seen in my entire life, and more than a few of us fought to retain our composure. That's solidarity. The German Navy ship doing an incredible thing that day after the attacks. They identified who was suffering. They didn't care how strong and powerful he once had been. They stood by in solidarity at our side. That's what Peter did for Simon the Tanner. 
Shunned and shamed, avoided and rejected, Peter chose to stay in Simon's house in Joppa, in the house of the shameful leather maker. And it's the same thing that Jesus had done when he chose to stay at the house of Zacchaeus, the tax collector. It's the same thing that Jesus had done at the house of Matthew, also a shameful, shunned tax collector. The Son of Man had no home except the homes of those who had been shunned by their community. The solidarity of Jesus who stands by those who are hurting. You've seen in the newspaper, in the news, a lot of marchers on the streets of St. Louis over the last 10 days. St. Louisans who say they feel shut out, abandoned, unvalued, who feel that their lives are treated as if they had no value, as if they were not made in the image of God. And some of you have been out there yourselves, Uh, For those of us who haven't felt called onto the streets, the temptation has been to rush to evaluate those who do, to evaluate their motives, to evaluate their methods, to evaluate how they should or should not feel, how they should or should not go about things. Uh, You know, and the heart of Jesus is calling us to put those thoughts on hold in order to show solidarity with those who suffer. It doesn't mean that you're turning your back on officers in uniform. It means that you're willing to listen. You're willing to understand. You're willing to hear the hurt and hear the pain. You know, I'm sure it went through, you know, Peter's mind when he saw Simon the Tanner being jeered at and mocked and everybody mad at him. I'm sure it went through his mind at some point. You know, Simon, if you really wanted people to like you, Maybe you shouldn't have become a tanner. Yet he didn't say that. He suspended judgment. He suspended evaluation. Just as God in Christ has suspended judgment and evaluation on you and accepted you and sent your sins and failings to the cross where they were paid in full. It's a call of God here to see who is suffering. Whatever reason. And to enter into their experience, to enter into their home, enter into the home of Simon the Tanner, to sit at his side, to listen, to weep with those who weep. Solidarity means you put everything else on hold first so that you can empathize, so that you can understand. This isn't about who's right or wrong. It's about solidarity with those that suffer about the ability to sit with someone who's felt shut out, to understand what they feel, why they feel that way, to empathize with them, to validate everything you can validate, and to not mention the areas where you think they're wrong. It's the heart of Jesus who hears the cries of the afflicted. Are you in solidarity with those who have suffered, where they've suffered because they're physically intimidating, or where they suffer because they're, they're physically disabled? or whether they suffer because they're socially neglected and socially incapable and socially shut out, or whether they suffer because they have been shunned. It's biblical solidarity, and it's what Peter was showing to Simon the Tanner because it is integral to the mission of God that we love. 
Peter has taken this man who's pushed out beyond the edges of human affection and human community, and he's brought him into the very center of this new community, the church. He doesn't set up a ministry for people who deal in unclean professions. He pulls them into the heart of the family of God and its relationship and its compassion and its love. It's as if Jesus is saying, it's precisely because you are shut out that I make you the center of this new community, my church in this city of Yapa. It's the common thread in all these encounters this threatening man, Saul, violent history pulled from the edge into the middle because a follower of Jesus named Barnabas loved him. A physically disabled man named Aeneas who's been isolated in bed for eight years pulled out of his dark and stinking hole into the sunlight and the life and light of the community of Christians who loved him. Those widows who would have ended up dying alone, enslaved, working the streets or working for someone else were pulled into a community of love because a woman named Tabitha loved them. And Simon the Tanner pulled into the heart of the discipleship and community of Christ because a follower of Jesus chose to stay in his house and do it for a really, really long time as a friend to the friendless. These early followers of Jesus, Barnabas, Tabitha, Peter, They were willing to pay a price to be a friend of the friendless. Peter likely lost a lot of respect from a lot of people he loved. Peter, what are you thinking? How can you stay in that filthy house? Don't you think it's going to hinder your ministry to your fellow Jews that you're staying with somebody who is unclean, that you yourself are becoming unclean? What are you thinking, Peter? And he took the abuse and he didn't care because he had Jesus Barnabas took a risk, rearranged his schedule and his life in order to to stand up to people for the sake of of this new believer, Paul. Tabitha, toiling for hours, being a friend at great cost. It costs you dearly. The risks are great. You work hard. It's costly, friends, but it's also beautiful. So how is it possible? How is it possible? I can tell you why they're not doing it. They're not doing it because they're trying to earn their way to salvation or earn God's favor or look really spiritual. They're called saints. Did you see that in verse 32? The saints, the holy ones. They're already declared righteous in God's sight because Jesus has taken all of their sins and paid for them. And he's clothed them with the righteousness of Christ. They're already holy ones. They're already saints. It's right there, verse 32. This is something, now this is something that Jesus is doing through us, his church. It says in verse 31 that the church was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Jesus was there, compelling them to love as they had been loved. They're praying to a God who listens to them in verse 40 because they have access through Christ. Jesus is doing this ministry through them in verse 34. Jesus was their very message. It's not a program, but a person. This Jesus was a prophet, but he was so much more. He was the one to whom the prophets pointed. He was the way to which the prophets pointed. He's the Son of God, verse 20. He is the Christ, verse 22. And their message is, in verse 27, the Christians preached the name of Jesus. That means his person. Not just what he does for you, but who he is. You see, you can can focus on your theology, you can focus on your ethics, but... And you can even focus on your activism. But friends, what are you doing with Jesus? Jesus is alive and at large. He is present in the assembly of his people. He is calling you into a relationship. He is saying, no, 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 this is about me. 
This is about me. What are you doing with me? Are you believing me? Are you trusting me? Are you trusting me to wash you? Are you trusting me to clothe you? Are you focusing a, a Godward life toward me? I am the one who loves you. I am the one you're looking for. I am the one you need. It's, it's not a program. It's not a plan. It's a person. That is our message. They preach Jesus. That's how they did it. Because Jesus was the center of their life. His love. You see, when you're unlovely, and then you're loved by Jesus, that's going to shape you. If Jesus reached out to you and chose to be your friend when you were friendless, you're not going to withhold kindness or friendship from someone else. The gospel doesn't leave room for us and them posturing, for picking good guys and bad guys and winners and losers. You're just a whole bunch of sinners made in God's image and loved by Jesus who can save them. When you are human, Christ became human to be your friend. When you were in rebellion against his authority, he chose to be a friend for you. When you were physically threatening, Jesus let us kill him so that he could love us and rescue us. And when you were friendless, Jesus was your friend. He paid the price of befriending you gladly, and he did it because he loves you. He's a friend to us sinners. When you were tanner, when you were a tanner named Simon, shamed and shunned and rejected and avoided, Jesus came into your house and he set up shop there. When you were the lonely 82-year-old in a hospital before Christmas, Jesus was the one who came and said, I'm going to spend the holiday with you now. When you were the widow with no hope and no future, he was the one who made clothing for you. When you were the angry extremist, he was the one who came alongside you. When you were paralyzed and bedridden for eight years, he is the one who carried you and healed you. Friends, all we have is Jesus. And he calls us to his mission. A mission of being a friend to the friendless, just as he was our friend when we had none other. The force of the impact tore through the ship. And at that moment, they knew their shipmates were never going to survive. You maybe heard about it in the news. It was this past July when the Navy destroyer, the USS Fitzgerald, collided with a Philippine-flagged container ship 56 miles off the coast of Japan. The impact hit below deck below the waterline. Uh, we have a photograph of the damaged section of the, the ship now in dry dock. You can see the hole, and you can see above the hole the waterline because that hole was below water. What you also need to understand is that on the other side of that hole was the crew's sleeping berth, and it was nighttime, and most of the 200 shipmen were asleep right on the other side of that hole. These were young sailors. A lot of them were still teenagers. Most were below deck, and they were going to die. There was one older soldier on board, 37-year-old officer Gary Ream, who called them his kids. We have a photograph of Gary. Can we get the next slide here? Gary never had kids of his own, but when the impact of the crash shook the Fitzgerald, Gary Ream was the first one to jump down into the flooding section of the vessel. 
He started pulling young men out of bed, waking them up, alerting them. As the waters rose in their sleeping berth, reams stayed below, pulling young sailors out of the water, pulling, pushing, and dragging them up to safety. You can picture the horizontal plumes of water shooting in from one side, the lights getting dark and flickering. You can hear the screams and the cries of panic as death approached, the smell of saltiness, clothes soaked through, darkness and death hovering around them. And there in the middle of it all, was 37-year-old Gary Ream. He would push one more kid up to safety and then go down again and push another one up. All the while, the captain was giving orders to lock down the hatch because that section was flooding and it was the only way to save the ship itself. You can imagine as Gary's hauling up another drowning sailor up through the hatch, the look above him as the officers looked at him and told him that's the last one. Gary, you've got to get out. You can't keep doing this. You're going to drown. But they saw the determination In his eyes, they had only seconds before the hatch would have to close. You can imagine in those final seconds as Reem goes down underwater again and comes out with another survivor. And then he goes down again. The screams, you have to get out now. We're shutting the hatch. You're going to drown, Reem. Gary, you're going to drown. And he pushes another unconscious sailor up through the hatch. These were his kids. And as he went down again, the commander gave the final order. They had no choice. They closed the hatch. Gary Ream drowned. Accounts state that he saved at least 20 of his young shipmates, 20 of his kids. He gave his life in order to save them. That is what Jesus did for you. When you were drowning, unconscious, at the bottom of a sinking ship, Jesus dove into the hole. He dove into the dark and murky waters. He hunted you down. He found you. He latched onto you. And he pulled you up and pushed you to safety as the hatch closed, costing him his own life. Jesus died, a friend to the friendless. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we give you thanks.